0: Thanks, Carol. Uh, as Carol said, my name is Andrew Naber. I am the student ministry director here at Fellowship Asheville, and I am genuinely excited uh, to be with you guys this morning. And I'm going to be honest. Today, what we're talking about, it's going to be dark. It's going to be a little bit depressing. It's going to be weird. It's going to seem like these flowers behind me are a little bit ironic for, for a portion of this, but I promise I'm going somewhere with this. I promise Um, Y'all, when I was preparing this message, like, what, where I ended up, where God took me in this journey, is not where I thought we were going to go. And so I'm excited to share that with you guys. Um, Today we're going to start in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And let me get my notes up. And here... We go. And this is the promise that God made to Abraham. In church words, this is the Abrahamic covenant. So, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, says this Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, here, um, God says, go to the land that I will show you. This is the promised land. This is the land that, you know, we hear talked about over and over again in Israel's history. This is, you know, modern-day Israel. This is the land uh, that we think of when we think of that. And today... We're going to start with Moses. I wanted to to bring in that promise God made to Abraham to sort of provide context, to sort of provide a lens through which we're going to view sort of the rest of this because God's promises to Abraham and Israel are so, so important, especially, you know, as we sort of follow the Israelites through this journey. So we're going to move ahead now to Moses and the nation of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai. The nation of Israel is gathered there together, and they're about to begin their journey to the Promised Land, uh, to, you know, where they're going. And so they're all there, they're gathered, and they begin their journey. And now, everything's going great for about three days. By day three, people get tired and hungry, and they're complaining, and you ever ever go on a, a car ride? with your family, and it's like an 11 or 12-hour trip, but by hour three, people are like, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm thirsty, I want to go back home. Are we there yet? It's, I think the nation of Israel is kind of experiencing a bit of that. And that certainly isn't helped any when they send 12 spies into the land, into the promised land to go look and see, hey, what does this land look like? What, what is this land of milk and honey? What is, can we be there? Can we take it? And 10 of the 12 spies come back, and they see it, and they're like, no, the, the land is full of Canaanites. They're, they're powerful. They have big cities with, you know, big walls, and, and I don't think we can do it. And, and so the people hear that message from 10 of the 12 spies, and that was basically all they needed to be like, no, we don't want to go. We don't want to do this. Now, I do want to note that two of those spies, Caleb and Joshua, They looked at the exact same thing the other ten spies saw, but their response was different. Their response was to have faith in God, faith in the promise that he made, and they looked at it and they said, sure, there's people here, but can we fix it? Yes, we can. That was what... Joshua and Caleb's response was to to the same problem. But the people didn't listen to Joshua and Caleb. Instead, they listened to the ten other spies, and the people rebelled. They did not want to go into the promised land. And God's response to this, what we see was he essentially says, fine, you don't want to go to the promised land. You won't. He says to the older generation, the generation that, were adults and had just come out of Israel. He says to them, you guys are going to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years, and once you all die, then the rest of the nation of Israel can go in. And so what we see here is that God allows his people to walk away and face the consequences. That, that's going to be important to see later as well, that the people rebel, and God says, okay, fine. And then they wander around, and then, you know, before the years pass, and at one point, Moses also kind of rebels. He hits a rock with a stick a few more times than he's supposed to, and so Moses also can't go into the promised land as well. And so the people arrive at the end of this time period, after all the old people had died, um, on the banks of the Jordan River, about to enter into the Promised Land. And Moses gives them uh, gives this speech where he explains the law again, and he uh, recontextualizes it, and he tells them what's going to happen as they enter the Promised Land. This speech is the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 9.1, Moses tells the Israelites this. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in and dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven. Go, possess the land from the Canaanites. That's uh, what they're called to do. Now, I think it's very interesting here what he goes on to say in Deuteronomy 9, verse 6, which says this. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Yeah, like the promised land is not a reward for Israel being good or righteous. It's God's promise to them, and God keeps His promises. So that's sort of the, the point there. That's, that's what this is. It, it's God keeping His promise, and Moses sort of wants to remind the people like, hey, this, this isn't because of anything you have done. Um, And I think that's a good reminder. (laughs) And now, um, the next thing we see here as they're about to enter this promised land is we see the Canaanites, the people who are already there, who Israel is uh, dispossessing of their land, as the ESV puts it. Um, Something to know about the Canaanites here is they are corrupt. The Canaanites are corrupted. And... They are practicing all different kinds of evil. And when I say all kinds, I mean all kinds. I'm not going to go into it here, but they're evil. And so why? Why is God telling the nation of Israel to go take this land from these people? And I think a lot of this has to do with that promise that God made to Abraham in the beginning, right? Um, I will honor those who honor you, and I will curse those who dishonor you. I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to those around you. And um, if we look further on, like, the the Gibeonites actually repent from their wicked ways, and they see Israel, and they're like, hey, what they're doing, it, it seems to be working. So, So the... The Gibeonites, they, they repent, or repent also means to, to change your mind, or like you're facing over here, and now you're facing over here to change your direction, um, and so that's what the Gibeonites do, because that's kind of God's plan and, and purpose for Israel here, is for them to be uh, a city on a hill, to be salt of the earth, much the same way Jesus uh, calls us to be. So that's, that's God's plan. That's what's supposed to happen. And um, so people go into the land. Not Moses. He climbs up uh, Mount Nebo, which is also uh, known as Pisgah um, in the Bible. So fun fact, Pisgah is the Hebrew word for summit there. And uh, in case you're wondering, our Mount Pisgah here in North Carolina is taller than the one in Israel. I did look it up. So... Um, but they, um, they go into the promised land, and then Joshua, uh, the, one of the two spies who had it right, who said, hey, we can do this. Joshua is now the new leader of Israel. And Joshua sort of takes up the mantle of Moses, and he's sort of seen as like the new Moses. And so, much like Moses, uh, he gives Israel a speech after They've crossed over the Jordan after they're in the promised land. And in Joshua 23, verses 11 through 13, Joshua says this. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining around you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they, will sh- they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and a thorn in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. So, Joshua here gives the nation of Israel a very clear warning. A warning of, hey, finish what you started. Dispossess the land of the Canaanites and don't associate with them. And then Joshua, as he leads Israel, he does that. He leads them on victories in Jericho and in Ai and, and you know, in different places and this is actually under Joshua is when the Gibeonites repent. Um, but Joshua grows old and dies. So now what? Who leads Israel now? Uh, Judges 1.1 says this. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites and, to, and fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So at first, the people listen to Joshua. They heed his warning. Uh, Judah leads Israel and, and leads them uh, rightly. They you know, continue to drive out the Canaanites and continue to do what God commanded them. But things didn't really stay that way. Judges 1.28 says it this way. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor but did not drive them out completely. Now, I just I want to sit here for, for judgment because Israel, when they were in Egypt, at this point 80, 100 years ago or so, they were enslaved, and what was done to them—they are now just 80 to 100 years later doing to another people. What what is this? Why? I think, I think there's there's really only two reasons or two responses uh, to when someone sort of offends you, when someone uh, treats you very poorly. And I think it's either one of these, right? The first one is, I can't believe I was treated that way. I can't believe they, they put me in that situation. I'm going to do everything I possibly can to live my life in such a way that I never even come close to doing that to anyone else. That's, that's one response we see. And I think the response we see Israel take here is a different one. It's, well, what was done to me was absolutely horrible. And... I mean, what I'm doing isn't that bad. I'm not treating them, like, worse than I was treated. And I mean, I turned out all right, right? So this is fine. And I think that's kind of the logic we see Israel take here when they enslave the Canaanites. Israel was justifying and rationalizing their own disobedience in that. And I think, I think that's what we see. That's what we see there. And then, check this out. Because of their disobedience, Uh, God sends an angel of the Lord to them in Judges 2, 2 through 4. And the angel of the Lord says this to them. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices, and they wept. So here, the nation of Israel repents. And again, just like I talked about before, right? Repent means to, to change your mind, to face one direction and now face another. Israel sees that what they've done, they, they feel guilty. They feel like, I, I can't believe I've done this. Uh, one of my favorite examples of what repentance looks like is uh, when... Um, David writes Psalm 51. I think it's really, really a clear picture of, of this uh, sense of changing your mind, of turning away from what you were doing. Um, and, and that's what we see here in this, this first generation, right? We see them actually be like, that was bad. We probably shouldn't enslave people. And the rest of Israel, though, after this, we sort of don't see that as much. Uh, check this out, because Judges 2 18 and 19 is a summary of the next 300 years of Israel's history under this time of the judges. And what we see is sort of a downward spiral and a cycle that just doesn't go anywhere good. And I'm going to read the scripture and you'll you'll see what I mean. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies in all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But, whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So, Here's sort of what this cycle would look like. We start with the nation of Israel, right? We start with them sinning. And their sin brings oppression. And that oppression can be either conquerors or famine or or different things, different obstacles, different forms of oppression. But oppression still comes. And then the people experience this oppression and then they repent. They turn away. They change their mind. They realize, hey, our sin is bad. And then, uh, after that, God raises up a deliverer. He raises up a judge. And then, Israel has a time of peace. But that peace doesn't last. And then the people begin to sin again. And each time this cycle happens, Israel is not restored to the level of, of peace or godliness that they were in before. This isn't This is a cycle, but it's also a complete downward spiral until by the end of this, Israel is completely indistinguishable from the Canaanites. You look at Israel, and you can't tell that they're God's people. That promise that God had uh, for them and through them, uh, that he gave to Abraham, you don't see that because they're not being who they were called to be. They're not a city on a hill. They're not uh, the salt of the earth. They're, they're not that. They are now completely indistinguishable from the Canaanites and the evil around them. And what I think is, is so interesting in this verse here in Judges is um, verse 18 where it says this, For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Now, when I think of pity, this isn't usually the context I think of it in. In fact, it's almost never the context I think of it in. I think of it almost always as someone else saying, you know, you're in a rough spot and someone offers something and you're like, I don't want your pity. I don't need your pity. That's sort of, I feel like the only modern context we have for this. So I was was intrigued when I saw uh, that word pity. So uh, I looked it up. And the Hebrew there actually means uh, to repent, to change your mind. So you actually see here that God changed his mind. The people, um, God saw their suffering, and he was moved. He had compassion. He couldn't take seeing his people, the people he loved, suffering. It just, it bothered him too deeply. He was moved to action. And that's, that's the hope here. This is, I feel like, the point of all of this. Because when Israel was at its absolute lowest point in its entire history, we see that God still keeps his promises. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? And we see that His people can be completely gone, completely be chasing after other gods and everything else. And God still stands by his people. And that is is, is just, it's incredible. And when I think about this, um, there's a story that Jesus told in the New Testament that I immediately realized just, so encapsulated all of this. It, it really is the summary of of God and Israel and their whole nation and what it teaches us about who God is and His character. And so, um, but before I get there, I do want to point out that there is hope here for the nation of Israel. During this time, we see uh, this. This is when the story of Ruth takes place, right? So we see that God is preparing. Uh, a future for his people. We see that uh, King David comes from Ruth, and, and that origin story is here during this time period. That, that story took place during a famine, right? So it was during a time of, it was during the, the oppression bit in their, their cycle that they were caught in. And not just that, but at the end here, uh, God raises up Samuel, who is the last judge and the first prophet. And Samuel really restores the nation of Israel and then sort of brings it into uh, the area of Israel's history that I think a lot of us are, are certainly more familiar with than, than this time period in Judges. So there is hope for Israel and there is hope for us. And if you guys um, want to turn with me to Luke 15 verse 11, uh, Jesus tells a story here that is one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. And it goes like this. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there, he squandered his property in reckless living. So, real quick note here. Um, Inheritance is something you typically get after your parents die. And so the younger son here is essentially asking his dad to die. He's asking him to to essentially hurry up and, hey, I wish you were dead so I could have your money, is basically what he's saying here. And then what we see the father do is be like, okay, yeah, here here you go. And then... um, his dad, being a, you know, because he's a loving father, he said, "Yeah, here you go. Here's your inheritance. And then what does the son immediately do with it? He squandered it all in reckless living. Here we see the son hops on a plane, hits up Vegas, and spends all his money on all the things that a young man would waste his money on. And um, now, obviously I didn't have planes back then, but you understand my point. You get what I'm getting at here. He, he throws it all away. Um, And so, let's let's see what happens next. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And when he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, no one gave him anything. So here, we see the youngest son in this story reach rock bottom. He's spent all his money on sin, and now the oppression comes, right? We see that same cycle start to repeat itself in this story. There's famine. He can't eat. And he spent all his money, so what does he do? He hires himself out to, to feed pigs. And, you all know, pigs are gross, but... Also, pigs are extra gross and extra revolting to a Jewish person. And a lot of that is because of what the pig represents. It is unclean, and it is like, in in Jewish culture, it is the most unclean of all the unclean things. And not only that, but it represents unclean and unholy living. Like, this this job is, is such a picture of his life right now, that he is sitting there longing, like desperately wishing he could eat some of the pig slop he's feeding these pigs. Like that's where he finds himself, in absolute rock bottom. And so this isn't where the story ends. It's not where it ended for Israel, and and it's not where it ends for you and me. Check this out. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven and, and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And it, it's, this is the point where the son has reached... The lowest of lows this is where he, he um nIV puts it where he came to his senses where he's just sort of like, What am I doing here what what am I doing? Why am I in this situation like my dad feeds his servants and treats his servants so much better than this what if i if I just go home if i if I tell him you know how sorry I am, if I truly repent if i, I really you know, if I give this big speech on how I've sinned against him and, and, and against heaven and, and I'm, I'm ready to, to come home, maybe, maybe then just maybe he, he might forgive me and he might accept me back as, as one of his hired hands. That's his attitude going into this. And, and I love the father's response here. And so, and he arose and came to his father. For this, my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. It's this incredible picture of who God the Father is. And y'all, when I first looked at this, when I was first writing this, it was, this is too good to be true, right? Like, I, my thought was the Father. Surely he has to still be disappointed, right? I know he's embracing him, I know he's doing that, but but surely there has to be some bit of disappointment in how he just ran away and squandered all his money. And yes, you're welcoming him back and throwing him this big party, but there has to be, there has to be something held back, right? And the answer is no. God does not look at us with judgment or disappointment, but with open arms. God is there with open arms, saying to us, I miss you, son, come home. And that is just such a beautiful picture. But that's not all we see here, right? Because my reaction was, God can't be that good. And I I think we see a little bit of that in the older brother's reaction, where um, he says this. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drawn near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brothers come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. The father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You see, church, I'm the older brother. My my reaction here is, is such like, God can't be that good. Like, his love can't be that all-powerful, all-encompassing, that incredible. It's almost too good to be true. Like, I couldn't see beyond the mistakes. I couldn't see, you know, the most important part in all of this, the sin, the death, the destruction, and everything that Israel went through. The most important thing here is hope. And it's the hope that we see in God's love. And we see it here, and we see it in the story of the nation of Israel. Because there, throughout all of Israel's history, we see that God keeps his promises. We see that he's the same yesterday. We see that he's the same today and in the future. God is good. And, and God's love is astounding. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's beyond anything I feel like I can comprehend. And it's so cool seeing all of this and just just how good God is and how much he loves us. And I, I don't know, my reaction to this when I, when I first saw this and, and, and realized this was like to, to just fall and, and, and worship God. Like how can the God of the universe be this good and yet love me? It's It's an absolutely... Incredible thing, and I'm I'm just excited to 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 be here and and, and share that and um, yeah. Let's let's close in prayer, uh, dear heavenly Father. Thank you for being so so good. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your Son to to die on the cross for us. And God, I I pray that um no matter who we are or where we are that we would just we would know your love and your presence and that would that would comfort us and i ask that in jesus name amen